You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, Redeemer family, and good morning to those of you who are visiting with us. If you guys don't know me, my name is Rick Bowers. I have the the joy and the honor of being one of your pastors here at Redeemer, and I'm excited to walk through this text with you this morning, but I want to be honest. I'm really thankful for God's Word. I'm really thankful that we have it so that we can know Him more, so that we can uh, worship Him rightly so that we can know about the life and ministry of Jesus, but sometimes we have to wrestle with what we find in God's Word, and we're going we're gonna to do that today. Sometimes God's Word is, is difficult to understand, but I hope by the end of our morning we'll understand it more and understand God more rightly because of it. Well, if you're new to Redeemer, it may be helpful for you to know that we regularly preach through books of the Bible, and for the past several months we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, Mark's telling of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And Mark has a point to his Gospel. And his point is that God's King is here and God's Kingdom is crashing into our world. And we're going to see that even in our text today. If you were with us last Sunday as we journeyed through the text right before this, Jordan did a fantastic job walking us through that. If you were here, then you remember that what we saw last week was Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders of the day. He was being confronted by Pharisees, and they were cornering him into a discussion about what makes a person clean and what makes a person unclean. And Jesus told them, you guys think that what you're doing externally, your traditions make you clean, but what I'm saying, what's happening in the kingdom of God is that actually what comes from inside of a person is what defiles them. The evil inside your heart, the wickedness inside your heart, that's what defiles you. And as we move from last week's text into this week's text, it's going to be important for us to remember that truth that Jesus communicated. Because today we're going to see a bit of an object lesson for us and for the disciples on this truth. We're going to see Jesus put a kingdom reality on display for us today. Well, if you haven't already, would you grab your Bibles? Mark chapter 7 is where we'll be today, starting in verse 24. Believe it or not, I graduated from high school in 1998. And I learned a quote in high school which has stuck with me to this day. And that quote is, stay golden, pony boy. Those of you who are chuckling are probably laughing because you had to read a book in high school called The Outsiders, just like I did. And The Outsiders was a good book. I enjoyed it. But it was a pivotal book in the time. When it came out in 1967, uh, it impacted culture in a way that helped people see the dark and dramatic differences, socioeconomic differences, between two completely different groups of people. The author told of two groups of people. She told of the socias, short for socials, and she told of the greasers. The socias, if you guys remember, they were an upper class society. They uh, They were in. They had privilege. They had wealth. They had means. They had all of these things. And the greasers were working class society. They were not in. They were out. They didn't have all these means, and for the most part, they felt left out. They felt dejected. They felt like outsiders, hence the name of the book. 
Well, this same sort of difference didn't just exist in the pages of this novel. It existed in American society at the time. And differences between people groups have existed all throughout history. The separation of two different kinds of people is going to be the very important backdrop of our text today. In ancient biblical history, there was a massive separation between Jew and Gentile. Where the God of Israel was concerned, the Jews were those who were in. God had identified them. He had rescued them from slavery. He had brought them out of slavery, given them His law. He had walked with them, loved them, disciplined them, spoke to them. And they were holy because of this relationship with God. The Gentiles were those who were outside of a relationship with God. They were all the other people groups. They worshipped pagan gods and idols of the culture and the times. Maybe they knew about the Israelite God, but they didn't follow Him or worship Him. They They chased after their own passions of the flesh, their own lust, their own desires. In the text today, this difference between Jews and Gentiles is going to matter greatly to us. The kingdom of God is breaking into our world through God's King, Jesus. And in God's kingdom, differences like this are breaking down. What makes one person different from another person isn't going to be what we think. What puts a person on the inside and a person on the outside is going to be turned upside down. And God's King is going to show us exactly what He thinks of these kinds of differences between insiders and outsiders. If you guys would join me in prayer, we'll jump into the Holy Scriptures this morning. Heavenly Father, your name is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. We praise you for your word. We praise you that we can know you through it. I ask this morning that we may run into you to learn more about you, run to your word to learn more about who you are, and that may stir our hearts this morning. To open our hearts and our minds to make them fertile soil for your word to be planted inside us, the truth that we are saved and loved by you through Jesus. We love you and we trust you. Amen. As we start out in verse 24, Mark puts us in a really unexpected geographic area. Jesus and the disciples have made their way out of Jewish territory and they've made their way into the regions of Tyre and Sidon. These are the regions of the Gentiles. We could say the disciples are really not in Kansas anymore. They're surrounded by Canaanites. And so if that name sounds familiar to you, it might be because you know who Cain is. You guys remember Cain in our Bibles. Cain killed Abel. This was the first murder. The Canaanites were descendants of Cain. They were enemies of God. Historians record Canaanites, listen to this, as a Jew's most bitter enemy. And they represent the most extreme expression of paganism a Jew would encounter. Not only this, but to a Jew, Gentiles were unclean. Jewish people would often associate being around Gentiles as a threat to their cleanliness. And Jesus just marched the disciples right into these areas. You know, we have all these study Bibles. We have the ESV study Bible, the Apologetic study Bible, Reformation, you name it. We have tons of wonderful study Bibles. I think it could be really helpful for us one day if we get like the Disciples Footnote study Bible. 
Because I think this is a moment where the disciples are saying, what are you, what are you doing, Jesus? Where are we going? Do you, got, do you know, Jesus, where this road leads? Do you know it leads into Tyre and Sidon? Really far outside the reaches of this Jewish territory? Can I call in sick, Jesus? This is not the way we want to go. Jesus probably leaves Jewish Capernaum to get away from everything that's happening there. Crowds are forming. The disciples are exhausted. Jesus is continually pestered by the Pharisees' questions. So to get away, the text tells us they disappear into Gentile territory and they duck into what's probably a friendly home in the area. And while they're there, a Canaanite woman somehow finds Jesus. Somehow she's heard of him. Somehow she knows of his miracles and she needs what he offers. What's going to happen when an outsider Gentile woman comes to the feet of this Jew for healing? Let's look at this interaction starting in verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So this pagan woman comes to the feet of Jesus and she's begging him to heal her daughter. And by the way she addresses him in this text here, and also in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells this same story, it seems that she believes Jesus is Lord. It seems that she believes that this is the Israelite God's chosen king, the Messiah, standing before her. And let's just get right to it. In my home, we say, let's rip the Band-Aid off. So let's just rip the Band-Aid off. The response of Jesus here is shocking. There's no translation. There's no good translation which softens this. Jesus calls this woman a dog, and we need to address this before we move on. So what are we to do with this? Was Jesus being derogatory here? Was he putting her down? Was he making her feel small? Was he somehow exercising racial superiority over her with him as a Jew and she as a Gentile? Was he doing these things? Are we actually witnessing sin in the life of Christ? Because if Jesus is doing any of those things, it's actually sin. And if we're witnessing sin in the life of Christ, it's probably time to close our Bibles, put them under our chairs, leave, and not return. But we're not seeing those things in the text. We're not seeing sin from Jesus. To be good students of Scripture, when we walk into situations like this, we have to be careful of the sinful inclinations of our own hearts. We have to be careful that because of those sinful inclinations and the influence of a combative culture and an um, inflammatory culture outside, that we don't come to texts like this and are immediately appalled and angry and frustrated at Jesus for what he's saying, especially if we're already a bit opposed to Christ. It can be easy for us to use texts like this as fuel for racism or classism or any other of our sinful little agendas, but we would be fools if that's what we did. When we encounter moments like this, we need to interpret this moment in light of everything else that we know about Jesus. Does God's king regularly talk down to people? No. Does he usually insult those who cry out to him for help? 
No, he doesn't. Does he ever turn anyone away who calls him Messiah? No. Does he ever seem to think that Jews have some sort of superiority over everyone else? No. In fact, he condemns those who think that. So what do we know of Jesus and what do we know of his ways? How about that he's gentle and lowly at heart? How about he comes to make the first last and the last first? How about that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench? How about that he's not going to turn away anyone who comes to him? Jesus is not in the business of demeaning people. But Jesus is in the business of breaking religious expectations. Remember what took place moments before this in Mark's gospel. What we talked about last week. Remember that Jesus crushes the self-righteousness of the religious elite. He tells them essentially, you guys are ridiculous for thinking that your external behavior makes you righteous. And then as if to prove his point, he marches the disciples into dirty Gentile territory and into an interaction with a dirty Gentile. This should really help open our eyes to what we're seeing in our text today. Jesus has gone into a place where a Jewish rabbi and his followers shouldn't go. And by doing so, he's exposing a very serious tension between Jew and Gentile relationships, between the insiders and the outsiders. And he's exposing this tension because in God's kingdom, God's not going to have any of this insider-outsider division, this self-righteousness based foolishly on external appearances. Jesus has no problem with Gentiles. They aren't going to make him dirty. What's going on externally isn't what matters. What's happening internally is. And now that an externally dirty Gentile has come with an internally humble heart, Jesus will put the reality of God's kingdom on display. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, this woman pleads from Matthew's account of this story. And then here it is, Jesus replied, he replies to her in the way he commonly speaks. He replies to her in a parable, in a story. And he uses the imagery of a family dinner where children are eating at a table and family pets are sitting by underneath. Now, Jews were known to call Gentiles dogs. The word that a Jew would typically use is a word that's translated wild cur. And these are the mangy, aggressive packs of dogs that would roam the streets and attack people and cause problems. And Jesus could have used that word, but he doesn't. Jesus uses another word. A word which describes small household dogs which would live in the homes of Jewish families, much like we have in our homes today. Companions that would be loved and cared for fed and provided for, fellow creatures that actually become part of the family. It's, not, it's as if Jesus is not only challenging the insider-outsider paradigm, but in a way he's also almost redeeming the negativity of this word that this Gentile woman would have been so used to hearing from Jewish lips. And as he uses this parable, here's what Jesus is saying to her. First, that he has a mission. He has a reason he came. And the first, the first part of that mission is to declare God's kingdom, the arrival of God's kingdom to the children. The children at the table to whom everything has been promised to Israel. Jesus is communicating that right here, 
right now in physical form, he cannot possibly care for every need in the world. He's physically incapable of it. So he has to stay with his mission. Jesus is saying, look, it would not be right for me to take the bread of life from the table where the children are eating it and spend all my time giving it to everyone else. That's not my mission. That's not part of my mission right now. See, church, there's important information that most of us know today that this woman and the disciples didn't know. And that's that Jesus came not only to reconcile Israel to God, but to reconcile all of humanity to God. And that reality would later be known as Jews and Gentiles are included in the family of God as the church and inherit all the promises. But this woman doesn't know that at the time. The disciples don't know this at the time. So let's look at how this Gentile woman responds to God's king in verse 28. She isn't offended. She doesn't argue and rage. And this should give us a clue as to how she's received this comment from Jesus. She doesn't say, I'm not a dog, sir. Don't call me a dog. That's insulting to me. And she could have said that. She should have said that if Jesus was insulting her. There's probably no one else in Scripture who has so much against Jesus just because he's a Jew. But she doesn't get upset. Instead, her response might be, might be the most humble and hopeful response that we see in Scripture to Christ. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What amazing faith this is. What a stark contrast to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus and the disciples have just walked away from. She says, Lord, I know that I'm not a child of the promise. I would never pretend to be such a thing. I know that I don't have a seat at the table. I'm a Canaanite. I know who I am. I'm a pagan. I know my heritage. I know that I have nothing to bring to you. I know that I come to you totally unclean. I know that I come to you almost worthless, but still, I know who you are. And I know that a crumb from your hand, not a piece, not a morsel, but a crumb, I know a crumb from your hand will save my daughter. Jesus says, great is your faith. Your daughter is healed. The demon is gone. This is exactly what Jesus has been talking about to the Pharisees. In God's kingdom and to God's king, external appearances don't matter. So what matters? The internal posture of the heart matters. See, the Pharisees cleaned up the outside while the inside churned with wickedness. Jesus would call them whitewashed tombs. They would be beautiful and pristine and clean on the outside, but inside is death and decay. But this woman comes to Jesus in abject humility, no self-righteousness, pleading for grace and mercy. And listen, she has an unclean heritage. She's a Canaanite. She comes to him with unclean spirituality. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. She's not even the right gender for the time. She's a female coming to a Jewish rabbi. And all of these things make her completely unclean in the eyes of the religious elite, but not in the eyes of God's king. Because he's not looking at those things. He's looking at the posture of her heart. She has no idea that the mission of the Israelite God will one day include her people. But still she trusts 
and the Israelite Savior standing before her. She knows she isn't worthy of him. She comes to him in that posture, void of self-righteousness, complete humility. She knows she can only stand on Christ alone. This is faith that saves. This is faith that is great, Jesus says. And it's this kind of faith that sees the gracious extending hand of the Savior and receives it because God loves to include the outsider. But our text today doesn't end here. It continues and will continue also. Jesus and the disciples move on in the region and the news of who Jesus is is obviously spread across this Gentile land. And starting in verse 32, there's another interaction between Jesus and some Gentiles. It seems a team of people have banded together to bring their friend who's deaf and mute to Jesus. Now this feels a little familiar. Do you guys remember way back in Mark 2, Jesus was in a house healing people. Some people were on the roof. They ripped the roof off, lowered their buddy down. Jesus, we heal our friend. Maybe God's putting these kind of uh, examples in Scripture for us to remind us that it would be helpful to surround ourselves with people who will drag us to the feet of Jesus at all costs. Amen. And the friends in our text today do just that. Despite the fact that they're Gentiles, they come to Jesus for healing. And they bring their friend to Jesus for healing. And this man who they bring to him cannot hear and he cannot speak correctly. And so the friends plead with Jesus to restore this man. They want their friend to hear again. They want their friend to speak again. They want Jesus to make him whole again. And what Jesus does here with this man is a little bit different than what we've seen Jesus do in the past when he heals. Jesus takes time to enter into the everyday reality of this outsider. Think about it with me for a minute. This man can no longer hear and he can no longer speak. Jesus, when he heals, would often ask questions or have conversations or he would speak over someone. That's really no good for this man. This man can't speak or hear, so that's really no good for him. God's king desires to heal the man, not in a way that's impersonal to him, but in a way where he enters into this man's reality and shares it with him. So the text says Jesus reaches out and touches the man's ears. He spits and he touches the man's mouth. Don't let the spitting confuse you. Don't get hung up on it. We know from ancient history that spitting like that, it, saliva carried medicinal purposes. It was used for healing. And so Jesus is simply communicating to this man. Hey, I'm going to heal your ears and I'm going to heal your mouth. This is almost a bit of sign language. It's communication from Jesus to this man as he enters into his reality. Here's an example. I grew up in a home where my dad was almost completely deaf. And so we had to learn certain ways to communicate with my dad. We had to enunciate our words because my dad would read lips. We had to be sure we were facing my dad when we spoke to him so that he could read our lips. We had to speak with a certain tone and at a certain pace and a certain volume so he could hear us. And we did all those things because we loved and cared for my dad. We love and care for him. 
We entered into his reality because we love him and because we want to communicate to him. And this is the same thing that Jesus is doing here. He's entering into this man's physical condition and communicating with him in a way that says that he loves him, that he has compassion for him, and that he's there beside him in that reality. And then Mark says Jesus looks to heaven and sighs. Jesus sighs. What does that communicate to you? Think about it for a minute. If you're the man in the text, what what does that communicate to you? You can't hear. you, You don't know what's happening. Jesus has communicated to you. Then he sighs. Professionals would say a sigh will communicate negativity, disappointment, frustration. And I think that is what Mark wants us to see in our text today. As Jesus enters into this man's space, the human condition of this man affects Jesus. See, Jesus cares about the toll that sin has extracted on humanity, where physical brokenness is now in place of what once was perfect. This is the compassionate heart of our Savior, the compassionate heart of our God. We see, if you remember at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus weeps. For the same reason in our text today, Jesus sighs. Then he says, be opened. And it happens. Deaf ears hear. Tongue and mouth that was bound up speak. And what Mark records next is the point of all of this. Look at verse 37 with me. Right here, Mark records the astonishment of the Gentile people around in a very particular way. They say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And Mark's hiding a gem here that we're going to take just a quick second to dust off because it's really important for us to see. The word used here to describe this man's very unique speaking condition, that word mute, is only used one other place in the entirety of the scriptures. It's used in Isaiah chapter 35. Mark Mark wants us to connect these two things. He says they're connected, they're related, see this. And so we want to see this. So what is Isaiah talking about? Isaiah the prophet of God, what is he talking about in chapter 35 of Isaiah? What he's doing is telling of a future time when God's king will come and God's kingdom will begin to break into this earth and God's king will begin to undo all of the brokenness of sin. Look at Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Here it is, the tongue of the mute. There's that word. Sing for joy. The God of Israel has kept his promises. Even the lips of the Gentiles are now testifying to it. God's king is here and God's kingdom is breaking in just like he promised that it would. See, God has sent His Son, Jesus, to show us the very nature of Himself. 
In John 14, Jesus says, hey, if you know me, you know the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. Jesus is God's king. He's God in flesh. When we read about the life and the work and the compassion and the love and the patience and everything else about Christ, we're reading about the very nature of God himself. And from our text today, we see that God is a God who not only includes the outsider, but God is a God who is pleased to enter into the outsider reality and share it. And church, I hope you know that we're all outsiders to God. We're all greasers, right? We just are. No one is born with enough righteousness that they can stand before God. Nobody can earn enough righteousness in their lifetime that they can stand before God. Our sin separates us from God. It makes us outsiders. It makes us greasers. And just like this Gentile man and woman, God comes and enters into our broken humanity. He comes and enters into our fallen condition, into our outsider reality. He walks into the middle of our broken homes. He sits down in the living room of our broken marriages. Through Jesus, he comes and redeems our horrible mistakes and reframes all of our broken hopes. God does not stand in some far off temple or palace and beckon us to come and beckon us to make our way to him. Instead, he comes and enters into our reality through Jesus Christ. He comes to us and he comes into that space and he cares for us and he compassionately engages us and he says to us, come here, because I'm about to heal you. And ears that were deaf now hear the gospel and eyes that were blind now see the glory of God and a tongue that was bound is now loosed to praise him. And as we realize that he's done this, his spirit works within us and it stirs up our hearts where we no longer stand in a posture of our own self-righteousness and our own works, but instead we fall on our knees and we beat our chest and we reply in faith like the Gentile woman does in our text today to say, I know who I am. I know I'm an outsider. I know when I come to you, I bring nothing, but I know who you are. And I know that even a crumb from your hand is all I need. Would you save me, Lord Jesus? And do you know what, church? Every time he does it. It's his pleasure to do so. He loves the outsider. He has compassion on the outsider. He's come to the outsider and he responds to faith like this. And here's the kingdom reality this morning. Here it is. This is the kind of faith that saves us. And it's also the kind of faith that sustains us. This is the kind of faith that saves us in a moment. We humble ourselves and we see who we are and we repent. And we trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And it's the kind of faith that sustains us. That we have a continual posture of humbling ourselves, of repenting, of falling at the feet of Jesus Christ, and of trusting in Him alone. So this morning, 
to those of you in this room who aren't Christians and to those of you who are. I invite you to humble yourself before the feet of King Jesus. I invite you to repent. I invite you to lay down your works and your righteousness and to rest in Christ's work alone on your behalf. And then as Isaiah said, may our lame legs leap for joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is only your grace and mercy through Jesus Christ that brings us life and freedom, that brings us true joy. You've been pleased to enter into our reality through Jesus. I ask that that would stir our hearts this morning to respond. I ask that that would stir our minds to be a truth that we understand and a truth that we can hold on to, that it be a foundational reality for our lives. I ask that you continually draw us into you and you remind us of that grace and mercy, that it's not a grace and mercy that's just happened once, but it's something that happens continually in our lives. As Jesus walks alongside us, as the Spirit lives within us, as we are stirred to give you more praise and more glory. God, would you do a work in each one of us this morning? We love you. Grow our trust in you and our faith in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.